Lord, thanks so much for this, um, this time. What a pleasure it is to get to walk through Romans together, and what a privilege it is to get to study it, to have an excuse to study it every week. Um, never enough time to sink into this amazing book, Lord. Um, thank you for the privilege of, of being up here in this upper room together tonight to just to dive into your word, to, to submit ourselves to, to your word in Romans 7, to meet with you, um, to think about, to contemplate um, what you've done for us in Jesus. And I pray that it would be not less than that, but more than that, that you would come Holy Spirit, that you would unite our hearts and minds, all that we are to Jesus, that you would meet with us and make us like him and make us to love him more and to behold more of his beauty and more of your goodness and power in our salvation and, and restoration and all that you're doing in Christ to restore everything. Um, triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, we bless you, we love you. Uh, come Holy Spirit and lift Jesus up and uh, make things clear in this difficult text. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're in Romans 7, and we are going to read the text at some point. Why don't, um, why don't I say this? I'll, I'll prep, I'll prep with one comment and then we'll jump in and I'll read it. So Romans 7 is, Romans 7 is, it's an amazing chapter. It's, um, it's a difficult chapter. It's not easy to understand. And And here's, there's a few reasons why. Here's, the main reason, at least from my perspective. And this is one of the things that makes it so interesting. I think we're going to have fun tonight. Um, I definitely want to try to be more Socratic. I want to try to open it up more to questions, insights. So definitely have your Bible out. If you, hopefully you have one. If not, it's okay. Pull your phone out or whatever. Um, get, seriously, if you don't have one, get next to a friend that does and, and, and jump in together. But um, I want this to be more of a roundtable. So I, I do want to hear y'all's thoughts on this. Here's the reason that Romans 7 is, I think, somewhat opaque and difficult and something definitely to wrestle with. Commentators are pretty much, I don't want to say evenly divided. That was sort of imply that I've read all the commentators, but I think they, they are somewhat down the middle on uh, certainly commentators on both sides with regard to did, especially starting in vor- verse 14, so the latter half of chapter 7, which we're going to have to read the whole thing right now. Um, so you'll see what I mean in a second if you don't already know. But commentators are, are evenly divided or divided on did Paul... Certainly Paul wrote this, but was he writing as, as the Paul, as, as if he were the pre-Christian Paul, the pre-saved, pre-Damascus Road, pre-converted Paul, um, from that perspective, from the perspective of, of an unbeliever? Or is he writing as a believing, saved Paul? That might sound strange. It'll, I think it'll make more sense when we read it, and then definitely, hopefully, when we, when we get into it. Um, so that's... That's really a, a, a question, and for a while, for years, I kind of would waffle, and sometimes even still when I read it, I'm like, yeah, should I change my opinion? So it's, it makes it very interesting. Um, so here we go. Let me go ahead and read it, and then we'll have plenty to talk about, plenty to wrestle with. So coming off of chapter six, um, where... We are not, Christ doesn't free us to sin, but he frees us from sin for God himself, right? Verse uh, 1 of chapter 7. Or do you not know, brothers? Let me just back up a little. That's, that's tough to start right there. Uh, verse 
22 of chapter 6. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, there it is, the fruit you get leads to sanctification, which Paul, by the way, that's really the theme of, of chapter 7, sanctification, in this, of, of this larger section. Um, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, our text proper, 7-1. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while, she, while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. Okay, so far so good. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an, an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. And the Greek says, some footnotes you'll, you'll, you might have of the letter, not in the old way of the letter or of the written code. What shall we say then? Verse 7. That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law, so, he's wrapping up here. So the law is holy, or he's resuming, I should say. The law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, producing death in me through what is good. Namely, I'm, I'm inserting this, namely the law, right? In order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Okay, here's where I believe he transitions. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want. Now, let me say this. Let me pause and say this. I'm actually going to ask after we read this for you guys to vote, and then we'll take a vote at the end. <laughs> I want you to just array, and it's, it's fine. I mean, there are people on both sides, but I want to see, and I want this to be a dialogue. Um, who, who thinks this is Paul writing this? Of course, as a saved person, but as if, hypothetically, he were, it was, it was a pre-Christian Paul. Or do you think it was Paul, current day, saved Paul? Okay, let me start over in verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want. But I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Now let me say this, so far, you might be leaning toward the... I, this can't be the saved Paul. Okay, now let's go on. 
I think the tide turns a little, but that's why this text is so hard. So I find it to be a law that what, when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And of course, the very next verse, no, no chapter divisions in his letter originally, the very next verse, which we'll save for the new year, we'll start with a bang, is an amazing verse. It's not to be separated from this, but for the purpose of our lectures, we will. Verse 1 of chapter 8 is glorious. And let me just read it. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he goes on. Okay. So let's take a vote before I jump in with uh, a couple things. Who thinks that this is, and again, we'll take a vote toward the, at the end. Who thinks that this is the, this is Paul writing as the pre-converted Paul, as, a, as not a believer, just dead in sins and trespasses? Raise your hand. No one? Okay, wow. No one. Okay, well, let me ask this, because we can't have any. There's no neutral. you gotta, you got to vote. So, okay, so who thinks this is the converted Paul? 100%. That's amazing. I have to say... Small sample size. One, small sample size. Two, uh, I am surprised. Three, I think we have a very astute class, which I knew ahead of time. I admit, I am also on your side. Um, that's, that's surprising. That y'all, okay. Um, maybe it's not as difficult of a text as I thought. Uh, I'm excited to, to jump in with this uh, with you guys together on this and see see your thoughts. But let me let me say a few things first. Um, so, by the way, I need to give you guys less easy to write when there's not a table. But let me give you the notes. Can I rely on you, brother? Thank you. Um, you'll see as uh, Jordan hands out the notes, passes them around rather that. Um, the title of the, of the lecture here is Freed from the Law, but Not from the Fight. Freed from the Law, but Not from the Fight. Um, so I've mentioned this before, but um, Robin, especially my wife, grew up in, I say my, I mean, yeah, I say my wife mainly for the benefit of those listening, um, my wife grew up in more of an environment where, and let me just say it this way, um, I think that it's a fairly prevalent um, sort of American, Southern, or evangelical theology, or has been in the past, that you, you believe that, rightly, that the minute you trust in Christ, you are justified. You are, the righteousness of Christ is imputed to you. You're declared righteous with his righteousness. You're declared not guilty. And, and even more than that, of course, you are brought into his family. You are made right with God. Um, you are made a child of God, more than just cleared of guilt, right? So, but we, so justification, you are cleared of guilt. You're declared righteous with an alien righteousness. We've talked about that with his, his righteousness. Your sins are forgiven. That second you believe, the instant you believe, faith takes hold of, of, that, of Christ's righteousness for you, and uh, your sins are paid for. Um, and then... It's also believed, and that's all right, it's also believed that when you see him face to face, you'll be glorified. 
the work will be finished. It'll, what's been going on in you will be, will, um, be finished. But there's sort of this, and it's never said this way, but there's sort of this in-between category. Between justification, the instant you believe in Christ, your sins are forgiven, and when you see him at the end of your life, when you breathe your last and go to see him in glory, and you're glorified. And Paul will talk about that explicitly in Romans 8. There's sort of this in-between period, which is basically called life. It's like life between when you trust in Christ and when you die. Where it isn't, it's sort of unspoken, but it's like, because it's unspoken, the culture becomes, hey, behave. There are a lot of don'ts, don't do this, don't do that. Um, uh, Be good. And uh, don't do a bunch of bad stuff. And when you do, because you're not supposed to do bad stuff, hide it. Um, That's kind of sometimes the culture that, that grows up. Um, and what's missing in that sort of, and I'm obviously I'm uh, caricaturing, but what's missing in that construct is the doctrine of sanctification. And the doctrine of sanctification is really what Paul's talking about in this chapter and, and has been talking about in 6 and we will go on to talk about in chapter 8 as well as he moves along. Um, and that is that we, the minute we, are, we trust in Christ, we are declared righteous with his righteousness. And we are completely forgiven of all of our sins. And that's part and parcel of being united to Christ. But because we're united to Jesus, um, the journey of sanctification, it's not this instant declaration. Sanctification is the outworking of, of the holiness and the likeness of Christ himself in, in your life through a life of obedience. But that is also by faith, just as much as, just as, much as what you grabbed hold of with just, when you were justified. It's all, it's all through Christ. But it's a fight. You work out, as Paul says in Philippians 2, you work out what's been worked in. It's just as much what's been purchased and delivered to you through Jesus. It's just as much by faith, but it's a slow process of actually becoming holy, and that's called sanctification. But it's not something you gin up. We've talked about this a little bit. It's, it's a life of faith, and it's, and it's just as much part of the complete salvation package as justification and of, of the finished product of glorification because it's all in Christ, and it's all through faith being united to Christ. So it's that sanctification is that slow process that really happens from the minute you trust till the minute you die. Um, But a lot of times that's missing. And that's really what a lot of what Paul's talking about here in this text. Let me let me read um, Paul David Tripp. Let me read just a bit from him. He says, he says, when you think in terms of the moral absolutes, it's either and I'm taking I've cut out a bunch of what he said from before. So I'm kind of jumping in here in the middle of what he of what of of a block quote. He says, when you think in terms of moral absolutes, it's either oily rag or garden of delights, right? So either I'm an oily rag, I'm a pile of sin or garden of delights. I'm, I'm with the Lord and I'm, I'm no longer, you know, able to sin. But he says, but when you think in terms of the change process, so sanctification, actually being changed from one degree, degree of glory to the next, actually not just having the status of Christ conferred on you, but actually becoming more and more like Jesus, becoming more and more holy, um, hating sin more and more, sinning less and less, um, loving him more and more, loving your neighbor more and more. Um, he says, when you think in terms of the change process, it's, it's not either oily rag or garden of delights. It's from oily rag to garden of delights. We are each and all on a trajectory from what we are to what we will be. The moral absolutes rightly orient us on the roadmap, but the process heads out on the actual long, long journey in the right direction. The key to getting a long view of sanctification is to understand direction, he says. What matters most is not the distance you've covered. It's not the speed you're going. It's not how long you've been a Christian. It's the direction you're heading. Now, he gives an example. 
He says, do you remember high, any high school math? I don't remember much, just mainly a feeling of terror. Um, a man drives, the, he says, a man drives the 300 miles from Boston to Philadelphia. He goes 60 miles per hour for two hours and 40 miles per hour for three hours, then sits in traffic for one hour not moving. This might be conjuring up, probably not geometry, the geometry exam that Sarah just took, but um, if traffic lightens up and he can drive the rest of the way at 30 miles per hour, how many hours will the whole trip take? <laughs> Amazing. If you know the formula distance equals rate, uh, times time, you can figure it out. He says eight hours. Okay, so I don't know who's right, him or Jordan. <laughs> is sanctification, I wouldn't have even taken a guess. Is sanctification like that, a calculation of how far and how fast for how long? And then he says, not really. The key question in sanctification is whether you're even heading in the direction of Philadelphia. So, um, the idea is that United, underneath and over all this stuff that Paul talks about, and we'll break it down as we typically do into three sections tonight, um, is the fact that faith unites us to Jesus. We are declared the minute we trust in him, instantly righteous with his outside righteousness. We are brought in as God's full children. And that works itself out over time through, in our lives as we fight the fight of faith. Um, but it's, it's all it, through our real and vital spiritual union to Jesus Christ, received through faith, the, the anti-work. And then we will be glorified. What, what Jesus starts, he will finish. He will never, he will never sever himself from, from, from those who are his, right? We are his body. Um, so the big idea is that, I think, in this text, is that Christians have been freed from the law. Again, they've been freed from the law, but not from the fight, okay? Um, and one of the things that Paul's doing here, I think, is that he's, again, sort of carrying on from chapter 6. He's saying, look, a misuse of, of, being, of the fact that we are free from sin is, hey, let's just sin all we want. That's not, that's not the Christian life that God has called us to. That's not the life in God that he's called us to. Um, also, the fact that we've been free from the law can mean, hey, we, it's just easy street. No, it, it requires a fight. And that's one of the things that I think Paul is talking about in that really, I think, difficult, opaque section that he finishes with in chapter 7, that there's a fight going on. There's a fight to the death, um, but, but we have the victory in Christ, okay? So, again, remembering, and then we'll jump into the three points. Remembering Romans 6. Romans 6, basically, he said, we're freed not to sin, but we're freed from sin and for God himself, right? Um, so, point one, united to Christ's death, we're free from the law. We're free from the law because we've been united to the death of Christ himself. That's verses 1 through 6. As we'll, just, we'll just look at those first. Um, and so let me say that another way. We died to the law's demands by dying with Christ who died for us. So let's look at verse 1. Let's look at verse 1. I think Paul sets everything up with this question. Or do you not know, brothers and sisters, that's what that means, or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Okay. Um, so what is he... We've read this, so we may know, but even if we hadn't read on, um, what is he setting up when he says, do you not know that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? What, what, is, what is he setting up when he asks that question? I'm setting up the contrast between the old man who is bound by the law mm -hmm. and the new man who is bound by the law of Christ, which is, you know, spiritual. Right? That's true. So... 
following from verse 1, when he says that in, the, in this setup question, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives, and we know that where he's heading is that the law is no longer binding on those who are in Christ. The law is no longer binding. The Old Testament law is no longer binding for the Christian. So if he's asking the question, do you not know that the law is binding only on a person as long as he lives, what's he going to say about, say about our living, our alive state as Christians? If a law is binding only on those who... We're dead to the law. We're dead, okay? So somehow where Paul's going to go is, we've died. We've died, okay? So... Let's, let's keep going. So he sets everything up with that. Do you not know that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? So again, what does this question imply? I, it implies that once you are dead, it implies, first of all, that it implies that once you are dead, you are free from the law. And where he's going to head is he's going to talk about the fact that we have died. All right. And we're going to talk about what that, what that means. Again, I think this isn't the opaque part so much as this is a bit abstruse. It's thick. Is, um, there, is it like, uh, isn't he... This is the same thing that Christ himself said when he says that um, whoever seeks his life or whoever loves his life shall lose it. Whoever hates his life shall find it. Yep. Pick up your cross and follow me. What was the cross but an instrument of death, right? Everyone in that culture knew that. Yeah, it was the counterintuitive idea that really the first step toward life. Yeah, Christ wasn't resurrected until he died first. And if we're united to Christ, we're united to his life, yes, but first is death. And so it's a call to come and die. Not to stay dead, but it's a call to come and die to all, to, to our entire flesh. And, and that's one of the reasons Paul goes where he goes at the end of Romans 7, where he's talking about this struggle, right? That death, is a, it's a one-time thing. It's already happened. And yet, in this life, and I'm getting ahead of myself, but that's okay. It's good because it'll help us kind of get the whole chapter, I think. In this life, even though I'm... I've died with Christ to sin. He has fully died to sin. But in this life, until I actually breathe my last, I'm going to have to continue to consider myself what I actually am, dead to sin. And that's going to be a fight because the flesh is going to, as we know, existentially, the flesh continues daily to crop up its snake-like head. It's not just like, well, I've died with Christ. I'm no longer tempted at all. It's not a fight. No, that's a joke. If you've been alive as a Christian for a single day, you know that, man, the sin is knocking at your door, right? So you have to consider yourself what you are, which is you have died with Christ, truly. And yet, in this life, okay, so I'm getting ahead of myself, but that, that's good that we're, so what does his question imply? Back to, back to the text. What does his question in verse one imply? That once you are dead, you are free from the law, okay? Okay, but um, you are dead. So what good is freedom from the law? Okay, so here's what I'm saying. I'm kind of tracing this out in my notes. Once, so he, his question implies once, once, we, once we're dead, we're free from the law. Um, in other words, the law said, in, going back to the Old Testament, the law said, hey, keep, it's a covenant that God made with his people. And he said, if you keep this, you'll live. If you break this, you'll die. Well, they broke it. They all broke it. And we all broke it. That's one of the things that Paul's been arguing for the past few chapters, for the early chapters of Romans, right? Is that we're all lawbreakers and we all deserve death. And we're all born into sin and we're all born into death. That's why we die, right? And so... Um, so the, 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 uh, what we earn in our law breaking is uh, in our covenant with God, if we break the law, we die. Well, we've earned death. So, okay, so then we die. Well, our covenant obligation to the law has been fulfilled. We've, de- we've died. But if we die, if we die, then what good is being free from the law? We're dead. See what I'm saying? I'm trying to trace this out. 
Um, what good is freedom from the law if I'm dead? I fulfilled, my, I, I've, I fulfilled the curse of the covenant by being a lawbreaker. Okay, and then let me trace this out more. Ah, but what if you could die? I'm, 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 I'm hypothesizing based on, I think, Paul's line of argument. What if you could die to the law without actually being dead? Put another way, let me put this another way. What if someone else could die to the law in your place and fulfill the obligations, take on the covenant curse of being a lawbreaker for you so that you actually remain alive, you're still breathing, but the law, the covenant that you've entered into with keeping the law as a lawbreaker has been fulfilled, right? So that their death, this death of this person who's not you, um, but who's standing in your place, right? So that their death to the law counted for you and you remained not dead, that is alive. And I think Paul is telling us this um, is exactly what God has done for us through his son, Jesus Christ. Now he said that in other ways, but he says it in, a, in this way, in this chapter, um, okay, so stay with me. Let's back up, though. Um, and, I, and I think that I've, what I'm writing here, I've just kind of talked about. Paul says that we have been bound to the law. How so? Right? And he uses the analogy of a husband and a wife. When God gave Israel the law through Moses on Sinai, he said, keep this and live. Break this and die. Those were the binding conditions. And that was a, that was a very common ancient Near Eastern um, sort of suzerain vassal treaty. God, though, with God, it was more like a, a, like a marriage covenant like a marriage covenant. Um, if you read the book of Isaiah, you can see that. Um, after all, like when you read the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, God says, hey, but even before he gives the law, right before he gives the law, God says, I saved you because I love you. But way before you started obeying me, I've, I, just, I saved you because I've chosen you to be my people and to take you to myself. And then the first thing he says is don't have any other gods before me. And what, the way that Jesus uh, summarizes that and other really important laws when someone comes to him and he says, what's the most important law? What does Jesus say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your strength. That's it. And your soul. And your soul. Love God with all of your force of all that you are. Mind, body, heart. Um, and, and so what God wants is our, all of us, all, all of our love, mind, heart, Strength, body, spirit. Um, and so, um, so we have broken the strongest possible covenant with the God of, the, of, of creation. Israel did. Israel did. Um, and, and we are just as guilty, right? We're just as guilty. Um, so our consequence is death. Um, okay? So, again, so back to, so that's, that, I already, had already kind of said that, but that's sort of a little bit more of the Old Testament background. Um, and Paul is talking to people here who know the law. And um, so every Jew knew that was the, that death was the price of, of covenant breaking. And, um, okay, so that being said, what if, hypothetically, like I say, what, so what good is if you fulfill the law's demands, and you die because you've been a covenant breaker, a lawbreaker, um, what good is that if you're dead? So, but then what if someone else takes that upon himself, takes that lawbreaking upon himself, and you remain alive, and that person dies in your place? Okay, that's, that's I think, the, sort of the subtext of what Paul's saying. Um, so, okay, let me, let me move on. Union with Christ through faith is the key to understanding 
He doesn't ever mention that phrase, but union with Christ uh, through faith is the key to understanding, I think, this first section, 7, 1 through 6. We have been united to Christ in his death. He kept the law, but that law-keeping record, and this is all, these are all things we've talked about, but let me, t- let me just unpack this. He kept the law, but that law-keeping record is ours, received through faith. So when you believe on Jesus, it's not just that he takes your sins upon himself, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Uh, and he becomes the curse that we have earned through our law breaking, but also that he in his life perfectly kept the law. And that that law keeping is counted, is pushed into your account, account when you trust in Jesus, as well as, as well as your law breaking is pushed into his account, right? So it's that great exchange. Um, so he kept the law, but that law keeping record is ours received through faith. So if, um, so if we get his law-keeping record, what does he get? He gets our law-breaking record, exactly, which is why he died. So he paid the price of a law-breaker, but remember, he was not a law-breaker. He was a law-keeper. So his death wasn't for him. It was for us. It was for anyone who's broken the law, who looks to him and says, I deserve what you took. You're, you're the savior of the world. Um, so in other words, he took our place. Uh, we de- he didn't deserve to die, but we did. He took our place. His death was vicarious. But again, like I just said, his death was vicarious. In other words, he died for us, not for himself. But also so is his life. His life was also vicarious. As a man, as a true man, he lived the life that we owe to God, but haven't lived. So his life, his death counts for you, but so does his life. Um, this is what Paul means. In verse 4a, look, look at it with me. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. Do you see? You see now with, a, with that bit of background what I think Paul is saying? Okay. How have we died to the law through the body of Christ? Because he paid the price of a lawbreaker by actually giving his life. That's what the law required. And because he did it in our place, we remain alive having paid, been, we were united to his death through faith, which means that, we've, that we're released from the law's obligations because they've been met in Christ's death. It's as if you have died to the law because you're united to Christ in his death. That's what Paul's saying. Um, okay, read all of verse four. Likewise, my brothers, you also have... You also have died of the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may, we may bear fruit for God. So we are no longer obligated to keep the law's demands. We are now, we've been purchased by Christ's death and we are now his, free in him to, not to live however we want, but to be his, to be his Servants, but more than that, his sons and daughters, to be brought into his family, right? Um, okay, let me, let me back up just a bit and recap this part one, this verses one through six before moving into part two. Um, verses one through three, let's go back to that. We haven't really looked at that, just briefly, briefly. Verses one through three, what does Paul say? He says, a married woman is bound in covenant to her husband only until he dies, right? We get that. Like we take the vows, and I hate it when people leave these out now, but till death do his part. Like I love, that's one of my favorite parts of, um, of, of a law, co- of a marriage covenant till death do his part. So I'm not released from this covenant until one of us dies. Right. Um, and that, and so Paul sets that, sets that up and he's like, you can't, a woman can't go and 
marry another man or sleep with another man while, she's, while her husband's still alive. But once he dies, she's free from it. So his death frees her from that covenant. It is fulfilled. That covenant, once he dies, that covenant that she had with him is fulfilled through his death. Its obligations have been met. She's now freed from obligations to him and free to marry another or not to marry. Verses four through six, he, he does a little sidestep. That was his example. And then he says, you were bound, in verses four through six, he says, you were bound in a marriage type covenant to the law. That's what he's saying. You were, we were bound in a marriage type covenant to the law. God says, live this way. I've saved you for myself. Live this way. If you break it, and, the, and Israel willingly enters into this in the, in, the, in the law, they say, yes, we will keep these commandments. And if we don't, covenant curses on us. And if, but if we, uh, yeah, if we don't, covenant curses on us, right? Um, our, our lives will be required of us. Um, so we were bound, Israel was bound, God's people were bound in a marriage type covenant to the law. Um, now let me trace this out. The law didn't, to keep with Paul's analogy, the law didn't die. Okay. But you did. Okay. The law didn't die. Okay. The law is not the husband that died, but we died. Like I said, we died. Okay, so we're the husband in this, in this scenario. How did we die? Again, like we've just been talking about. How did, how did you die? If you were bound to the law in a covenant, okay, you died. How did you die? You know, under two senses. I mean, there's the death that is the penalty for That's right. And we ha- then there's also the death to the law that we, the death in Christ that we shared. That's right. And so we haven't yet died as a penalty for lawbreaking because he died in our place. Now, if he, if we don't receive that vicarious death in our place, we will die. We will die under, under the penalty of God's, of, of being lawbreakers, of being sinners. That's what sin is, is lawlessness, right? Among other things. Um, but Christ died. So when Christ died, when you trust in him as Lord and Savior, as the one who lived for you, who died for you, who rose for you, you're united to his death. So it's as if God considered it, considers it as if you died, right? Uh, so the law didn't die, but you did. You died when Christ died. Um, your faith unites you to his death. Um, Paul doesn't say this, but he assumes it, which is one of the things I think that makes this text a little bit difficult. Um, so when you died with Christ, his death on the cross, as a lawbreaker, even though he didn't do it, he was dying for you. Remember, he was dying for you and me, not, not for himself. When you died, your obligations to the law were fulfilled. How? The law demands that if you break it, you die. And you died in Christ. He died for, again, for us, not for himself. So your death in Christ fulfilled the law's obligations. I know I'm repeating myself, but I think it's, it's helpful to me anyway. Now you're free to be bound to another, not to the law, the law no longer, you're free. Let's say, what I want you to get. I know this has been a slog, tough going. We who are in Christ by faith are no longer bound by the obligations of the law to keep the law. Like, and like Paul goes to great measures to, to say in Romans, in Galatians most stridently, in other books, not even one law, not even like, hey, but we still need to be circumcised. We no longer are bound to have to keep the law to live because the law has been perfectly kept for us. Just like you believe, I know all of you do, 
I believe all of you do. Your sins have been completely forgiven and paid for by Jesus. Every single one of them. Past, present, future. In the same way, he has completely fulfilled the law's obligations. There is no more obligation for you to fulfill to live. You're free from the law's obligations. Do you understand? And you're not free to live how you want. You're actually free to be a son of God the Father, a brother or sister of Jesus Christ, and brought, and, and, and brought in with the church to be the future bride of Jesus Christ. In soul-satisfying, eternal fellowship with him and with every other believer in history. Tasted now, feast is coming. It'll be fully realized one day. It's, it, if you are in Christ, it is, it, it is ineluctable. It is going to happen. You can't stop it. Do you understand when that penny drops about how you no longer are obligated to keep the law at all? It's been completely fulfilled. Just as much as he's forgiven you of your sins. When that penny starts to drop, it, it frees you. You don't have to keep the law. It, it changes you. Now, like we talked about last week, some of the freshman 15 of, of tasting that freedom of the gospel can be like, oh, I can live however I want to. Okay, no, that's not why we've been saved. We've been, we've been set free, not to sin, but from sin. To be children of God, right? But our, what that's doing, and this is where Paul's going to go, is that changes our disposition to the law. We no longer have to keep it. But we actually want to keep God's commands to love him and to love our neighbor. Not because we have to anymore, though. Because we know that that's the path to life. And we trust our Father. And we know how much he loves us. And we know that that's the other way is the way of death. But still we struggle. Okay, so that's the second thing and the third thing before we get to point two is your faith unites you not only to the crucified Christ, but to the risen Christ. Remember that pulley last week? If you're united to Christ in his death, you are, you've already been united to his resurrection, to the resurrected Christ. He's in you. And because he's in you, it's like a seed that will grow into an oak tree. That physical resurrection, if he lives in you and you're spiritually resurrected and seated with Christ, you will rise bodily from either the ground or the water, depending on where your body ends up one day. One day when he returns, you will be physically resurrected just like him. And you will be bodily in the new creation forever with Jesus, sinless, unable to sin. Okay, non passe, non non passe peccarum, right? Not able to sin. Okay, so your faith unites you not only to the crucified, but to the risen Christ. And Christ is not divided. The crucified Christ is the risen Christ, right? It's not two different Christs. The same person. But whereas on the cross and in death, he represented the old Adam, um, Adam, in his resurrection, he represents and indeed is the new. So he buried, he is the new Adam, the the second Adam, the new man. Adam just means man in Hebrew or human. So he crucified and buried the old humanity. The old humanity who was bound to the law, bound to keep the law, and and the consequence of not keeping the law is death to that old humanity. And, And actually, we're going to get to this section next. The law actually, and we've looked at this in previous chapters, the law actually, it didn't just tell us what sin was. What else did the law do? And this is literally our next section. It aroused us to sin. Yeah, it provokes sin in us, right? That antipathy is gone. It's gone, but because the old man has been crucified, but we still live in this in-between shadow lands where we haven't yet been glorified, we still fight. We still fight. We have to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive in Christ as we truly are. The fight continues, and we'll get to that in point three. 
So in his resurrection, he represents and indeed is the new Adam. The old man has been killed. The new man is alive. He's free in God, happy in God or woman, not having to obey God, not having to obey God, but getting to and happy to. Look at, I say, look at verse 6b. Let me just read the whole verse, but verse 6. Now we are released from the law, having died to that, again, with Christ, right? Having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Okay? As the resurrected Christ, by his Spirit, comes to live inside of us, and we are seated with him in heaven, spiritually, with him bodily. So, okay, clear as mud. Point one, just to recap, and then we're going to move to point two, is united to Christ's death. We are free from the law. We, when he died on that cross, we died with him to the obligations of the law, which was, you're a lawbreaker, die. He didn't deserve to die, but he died, so he's dying for you. He fulfilled the law's obligations. Okay? So, you've been released from the law's obligations. You're now his. All right, now, point two, the law makes me want to sin, as Jordan reminded us, verses 7 through 13. The law, put another way, the law provokes my sin, which kills me. The law provokes my sin, which kills me. Um, any, before we move on, from that section to, to this section, the law makes me want to sin, verses 7 through 13. Any, any questions? Any questions? Clear as mud. Okay, let me keep moving, and then anytime you want to ask a question, including at the end, feel free. The law makes me want to sin. Okay, the law provokes my sin, which kills me. So, what does he say in verse 7? He says that the law is good. What shall we then say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Right? So the law is not sin. Right? And he says in verse 12 more explicitly, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So the law is good. Verses 7a and 12. The law not only shows, verse 7b, but it provokes, verse 8, it provokes my badness. It provokes my badness. But sin, verse 8, but sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness, right? It seized an opportunity through the commandment. Um, So the law not only shows my badness, it provokes my badness. Um, So a sort of progression from verses 7 to 8, the law is not sin. It, It shows my sin, like don't covet. Oh, I, all of a sudden I know that coveting is sin. In seeing sin clearly, I, I sin more and more. The law is like bellows on, a hot, on the hot coals of sin. It inflames my sin. Um, we've talked about this before and we've actually eaten the, uh, we've actually eaten the, um, the object lesson, but the pears of uh, Augustine's pears, right? If you've read the confessions or heard, heard about it or were here when Jordan brought them for Augustine's reputed birthday, um, the uh, what, give give us the story on Augustine Augustine's pears. His friends uh, broke into a guy's garden and stole his pears, but rather than eat them, they just tossed them. And later in life, after he was saved, Augustine reflects on this experience and he realizes that it wasn't a uh, desire to eat the pear that led him to do that. It was actually the desire to sin, the desire to break the law itself. Right. He's like, I didn't even like pears, and I just did it just to do it, just to be naughty, just to break the law, right? Because I knew it was wrong. Um, and so that's a famous example from the confessions of of uh, of this. I think an, an illustration of this of this point. For me, I think I've shared this before. Have I shared the the story about the 
being at the Houston Museum of Natural Science, okay, in the low rail. For those of you that don't know, just very briefly, I was a kid, I was a kid, I was probably in high school, middle school at the very youngest, and there was a sign, I, I didn't notice the rail until I saw the sign on it, that was a lower, it was a lower rail, and it had a sign that said, don't put your feet on this, you know, don't use it as an ottoman, because it was lower, and it was kind of like the perfect and so as soon as I saw the sign, I was like, I could feel myself so like trying, my legs started twitching, you know? And, and so I did end up, of course, putting my legs on the, but the point is the law beat the placard there. Don't do it. And I didn't really care to do it at all until I saw that don't do it. And then I was provoked to do it. Um, anyone else have a story? Want to go on record? <laughs> I'm, I mean, I know, I know we're not alone here. I know I'm not alone. Um, if you have one, love, love to hear it. Um, I'm sure you can relate. This is this is the fallen person. This is our uh, this is our impulse when we are given a law, not just God's law, um, but something that restrains our evil. We want to. We're provoked. We're provoked to break. Um, now let me let me ask you this. This is sort of a later thought as I was thinking about this lesson. Have you ever stopped to ask why this is the case in anthropology, in human, in our human fallen nature? Why it is that the law provokes, that law provokes law breaking. It provokes human sin. And particularly God's law. That, I mean, obviously that, that sign at the Houston Museum of Natural Science in the IMAX was not God's law. It was a law and it still provoked my sin. But why in particular God's law? Why does God's law in particular, do you think, provoke our sin? That's just, it's the way we work and what we're born into at least, right? We have to be reborn for that to change. And it's still a fight. Like Paul says at the end of Romans 7, it's still a fight. Why do you think we, why do you think that is? Why do you think we work that way? I don't know. I'm throwing it out there. I have some guesses. One guess I have is to analogize it to the problem of pain. Um, yeah. Like, if I touch, if I'm a you know, child and I touch a hot stove and I feel pain. Mm-hmm. I'm um, reading about I that right now. Yeah. Not to do that. Yeah. And it takes the excruciating pain right. to teach me that lesson. And I don't know if this is. No, oh, yeah, it's it's ki- trace it out. Yeah. The law is a schoolmaster. Mm-hmm. It is designed to um, ultimately to reveal our sin nature to ourselves and our need for it's true you know so in the same i guess in the same way like why is it i guess um assuming that the law is god's law it's for our benefit right and the benefit can be it provokes you to sin and then you see what a sinner you are and then you realize you need a savior to save you from the sin is that and also it also seems like you're saying hey and then when i when i break the law and i experience pain then i kind of realize wait i need probably need to keep the law yeah. I don't know. So good. I mean, I like the comment. Anything else? Any other guesses? I mean, I'm. I never really quite had this exact thought until today. So I'm. I'm. I'm partly just wanting to workshop this, but. Um, be thinking. Um, speak up if it comes. Something comes to mind that you want to share. Let me. Let me um, share what came to my mind. Um, Okay, why does the law provoke human sin? So, next question, what is the law? The law is God's word. And God's word reveals his character. It literally, his word literally is his character. 
You know, what the words that come out of my mouth, so long as they're true and God's words are true, reveal who I am, right? Sin sets us, what does sin do? It sets us against God, right? It opposes us to God. It creates, it, it literally creates death in us, which pervades us, and he is life. So sin opposes us to God. We see this in our first parents. We see this in children who are born into Adam. Um, you don't have to teach kids to be selfish. You have to teach them to be unselfish. There's a reason for that. Um, so the law's provocation of our sins simply means, and I'm just tracing this out, just like Jordan kind of did. I'm thinking a lot. The law's provocation of our sins simply means when we hear God say, do this, we, uh, uh, we, when, when we hear God say, do X, we want to do Y. We want to do the opposite. Because we're opposed to God's word. Because we're opposed to God. And God's word is God. It's his character in print, right? Um, so, and this is a parenthesis, but let me trace this out a, a little more. The word is also his character in the person of his son, right? Who took on flesh 2,000 years ago. And when Jesus did, when the word, when the eternal word of God, the second person of the Trinity, took on flesh and entered space and time and became, was born of a virgin, which we celebrate this week. When we met God's word face to face, in person, in the flesh, when he came off the page, as it were, and breathed in front of us, and when he healed and he taught and he raised some from the dead and, and he rebuked others, what do we do to him? What do we do to God's word? We killed him. We, killed him. we murdered him. This is how much we hate God's word, God's law, God himself. So, so back from, back, so that the antipathy couldn't be more total. So isn't it interesting that sin takes on the very um, character of the first sin? Um, our sin being we, we see God's law, we hear God's law, and we want to do the opposite. We want to break it. It provokes, uh, God's law provokes sin in us. Um, the prohibition, do not steal, provokes in us the same response that Eve had. I just said do not steal as an example. She knew, so what I'm doing is I'm going back to the garden to try to maybe answer this question in part. She knew the law, kind of, she, kind of, she got it wrong in, in parts. The law was what? What was the law for Eve? In the garden. Do not eat of this tree. Yeah, don't eat of this one tree. You can eat of every other tree, right? Total a bounty, but just don't eat from this one tree. Um, she knew the law, and the serpent used that law to entice her to break it, right? And so when that sin nature entered in, it's just interesting that we also, when we hear God's law, it provokes us to want to break it. Well, he, the serpent, um, he, he actually denied the law. Eventually. Well, yeah. No, I mean, saying, saying, does does God did God really say? Did God really say? Yeah. So he planted a seed of doubt. Mm-hmm. That was mm-hmm. actually. And then he just directly contradicts it at some point. He just says, "Hey, he didn't actually say. You know, he's actually holding out on you." It's just interesting that the same thing that she ended up giving into and struggling with and failing um, uh, in is the way that sin nature uh, manifests itself today of course that i guess that makes sense right that we we've inherited that disposition to god's word and god's law um so why do we think that the process is the same with us that it was with eve right we you look like your parents in other words because we're born from adam and eve we act like them we need a new federal or covenant head and in christ we have one okay so that's just me tracing a bit out it it, it may be off base, but yeah. I think the de- I think it, it raises a deeply, even more profound question, which is again thinking about the garden. Is, again, like, 
why did man, why did God make man uh, posse peccare mm-hmm. in the yeah. first place? Yeah. And it's a huge question. Because that, that that's a, like able to sin. Right. Um, and I've heard you know answers like, well, he, you know, if he created us as automatons, right, you wouldn't have a real. You wouldn't have the kind of relationship that the son has with the father mm-hmm. of love, because mm-hmm. um, that you know, if someone robotically loves, you know, that's not really love. Right. And then another response is that God actually gets more glory by ultimately like bringing good out of the evil. By yeah, by giving us in the fullness of time His Son, and I think that's even more. I don't. I think that's even more the biblical answer. Yeah. And there's a lot of mystery there. But I think that the fact that basically that it in the end it will all have been worthwhile because of what God has done in Christ. Which is, I feel like the closest he gets to that, the closest the Bible gets to that. I mean, you see it in Revelation, but Ephesians 1. Um, but yeah, I mean, and the whole, the whole biblical theological thrust of the scriptures that leads us to the Messiah who saves us from sin. And, um, you know, and then I think that he gets to that Romans 9 some. So we'll probably talk about that more in Romans 9. I guess we can only get so far this side of this side of glory, side understanding. Of glory. But but we know that it has to do with 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 Christ coming to us, saving us, being manifested. Um, yeah, and the glory that that He gets and that we that He He will get through our worship and praise forever. Um, yeah, it, but it's a mystery and it's something. It's 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 quite a topic. So okay. Thirdly and lastly, this is, the, this is the bit about the debate, okay? So this is where it gets, I think, this is where I think we go from ab- abstruse to somewhat opaque, but very interesting. Paul the Christian or Paul the Pharisee. Point, this is the third, the third section here in verses 14 through 25. Paul the Christian or Paul the Pharisee? In other words, Paul the Pharisee being, Paul, is this Paul as if he's writing as a Pharisee before he was converted on the road to Damascus, uh, before he had the encounter with the risen Christ and believes in him as Lord and Savior? Um, or is it Paul the Christian writing? The Christian, or in other words, to, re, to recast that, the Christian, is this the Christian struggle he's writing about in 14 to 25, or is it a pagan struggle, right? Or a Pharisee struggle. Okay, this last section is one of the most opaque in the Bible, in my opinion. It's hard to decipher, as I've said. Which Paul is this? Commentators are divided. I've already said all that. Okay, um, let me say this. The position you take on this passage, and I'm taking this from someone else, the position you take on this passage uh, will largely determine how you read, will, will, de- will, will determine in some significant measure how you read all of Paul's letters and thus understand much of the Christian life. Especially, can I say this? This is one of the reasons I spent so much time at the beginning teeing this up, especially sanctification, which I think is a highly neglected aspect of the life that we have in Christ received through faith and worked out through faith. It's not something we gin up. It's not, it's not something we just try harder for in our own strength. It's something that we work, work at as much as ought to work at, as much as the greatest athlete, as much as the soldier or the farmer cutting off every hindrance that's keeping us from Christ and running that race to make our calling and election sure. And yet it's something that's completely purchased for us and given to us and received through faith by the work of Jesus Christ. It's the sanctification. It's this becoming more like Jesus through faith. Okay. So, um, this debate, is this pre-conversion or post-conversion Paul? Um, is this the born again Paul, John 3, or dead in his sins and trespasses Paul, Ephesians 2? There are actually three, not, I've, I've kind of cast it as two interpretations, and that's what I had you vote on, which I'm still astounded by your vote. I'm highly impressed. Uh, we could all be wrong. 
but I don't think we are. Actually, there are three main interpretations, and, I, um, and actually C.B. Cranfield, a famous Romans commentator, lists seven interpretations. I'm just going to give you three. Number one, the pre-conversion Paul, as if Paul is a Pharisee before he was born again. Um, he was dead in his sins and trespasses, but, but really keeping the, the law on the outside, really, really doing, devoting his life to keeping punctiliously um, the, outwardly the law, the law of God. Number two, but not keeping it, not keeping the heart of it at all, really. So pre-conversion, Paul, we've already, already talked about that. And then the, th- the second one that we haven't talked about is the generalized human apart from Christ. Um, the, gener- the generalized human just apart from Christ. And then three, the Christian experience and thus Paul's as well. All right, so I do think that with you, that Paul's talking about himself as a believer. Now he's heading, he's leading us into chapter eight. We can't read seven in isolation, but... Um, where he exalts in the victory that we have in Christ, right? And what, Christ, what God is doing through Christ in, in, the, whole, in the whole creation. Um, but he's also, in talking about himself, he's also talking about every believer, I think. So let's read it, and let me just, let me just point out some things that in the, in, in the text. Let's look at the text together briefly as we, as we draw to a close um, in this last point. But um, let me just point out some, some hard data from the actual text. To, to, I'll do it on both sides, but mainly to bolster... The case that, that uh, this is this is the uh, a converted Paul talking to converted people about the fight that we have to fight. Um, okay, so the subject I, this is this is bit you know exhibit A of evidence. The subject I appears in every verse of the Greek text of verses fourteen through twenty-five, either in the verb or as a pronoun. Knox Chamberlain um, he wrote this book, which really helped me in seminary, and I referenced some. Uh, the only, he co- I'm quoting here, the only verb in the first person, and by the way, the book for the, for the sake of the recording is Paul and the Self by J. Knox Chamberlain. Great book. I don't even know if you can get it anymore. It's like, um, okay, so he says the only verb in the first person plural is, is the we know of verse 14. Um, in other words, there's just this profusion exclusively almost of I. So Paul is really seeming to identify with what he's writing in 14 through 25, okay? Um, and as a subset of that, secondly, there's just too much anguish. You can sense the anguish in this text as you read it. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? There's too much anguish for this not to be autobiographical, which just seem disingenuous, right? Um, there's, thirdly, there's a the knowledge that in his flesh, check this out, in his flesh, there is nothing good. I think that's a really solid point, a salient, salient point, arguing for the fact that this is a converted Paul. He knows that in his flesh there's nothing good. I don't think the Pharisee Paul knew that. Um, I'm quoting here Chamberlain, for sin deceives its slaves, 7, 7 verse 11. For sin deceives its slaves, blinding them to their actual state. Again, we've talked about this before. It's the most sinful people who think they're the least sinful. It's a mark of being a saint that you know that you are a sinner and that you're wrestling. The more saintly someone is, the more they realize how wretched they are in their sin and how they have to cling to their identity in Christ. The more holy you are, the more you see your sin, not the less. It's a mark of holiness to see. As you grow in Christ, you will see your sin more and more. Um, Jay, I've said this before, but J.I. Packer, his com- one of his comments on the Puritan prayers as you read them, as you can do in the Valley of Vision, a collection of Puritan prayers, and you read them and you go, man, either um, they were way worse than I am, which 
No. <laughs> they were farther along in their sanctification journey than probably all of us. Can't speak for you, but either they were way worse than I am or they knew their sin far more because they were sanctified. Um, so he has this knowledge that in his flesh there's nothing good. And sin actually blinds us to that, right? Um, fourthly, there's this war. If you read verse 15, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Can you identify with that as a believer? Oh my gosh. If you can't, then you need an honesty check. I mean, or you're, yeah. There's a war going on here. Let me read from the Scots Confession. And by the way, the war is a sign, is one sign of the Christian struggle, of the, new, of the person who's a new creation in Christ who's wrestling against their sin. The Scots Confession, a reform document in chapter 13, says this, and I'm quoting, As soon as the Spirit of the Lord Jesus takes possession of the heart, that continual battle begins, which is between the flesh and the Spirit in God's children. Other men do not share this conflict since they do not have God's spirit. Do you see your, your lost, unbelieving neighbor wrestling against their sin? I sure as heck don't. Okay? The two selves. Okay, the two selves. This is another point that I think argues in, in favor of this being the converted Paul. The two selves we, um, we see in verse 17. Um, so it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me, right? There's this concept of the two selves, this wrestling. This is a subset of the war, right? This wrestling match. The flesh is mentioned in verse 18. The mind is mentioned in verse 23. And the inner being is mentioned in verse 22. The word being, by the way, is anthropon from anthropos, which means, as you know, because you study anthropology as a study of what? Human. Humans. So it means man or human. Um, so literally it means inner man. It's translated in the ESV, inner being. So the inner man, um, these are not different parts of the self. In other words, the flesh, the mind, and the inner being are not different, like three different parts of the self. There are different ways of speaking of the whole person, the body and soul, of, of the whole person, body and soul, I should say. Um, so flesh, let me just break that down briefly. Flesh is that born of Adam. It's the fallen man, which we read about in Romans 5, 12 through 21. It's dead in sin. It's wholly opposed to God. Verse 14b describes a condition, I'm quoting Chamberlain, that began before conversion Okay, so when 14b, when he says, uh, for we knew, this is a whole verse, for we know that the law is spiritual, 14b, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. He's not describing something that goes away when you become a believer. He's describing something that predates your becoming a believer and carries on into your new life in Christ. Um, the inner being, that's the flesh. The inner being or the inner man. So your, your flesh was put to death when Jesus died. It was put, it's been put to death because you've been united to Christ by faith if you have indeed trusted in him. But at the same time, we live in this in-between space where it's the already not yet. We've already been united to Christ. We are alive in him. We're dead to sin. And yet we're not, that work is not yet finished. We're in the, we're in the shadow lands. And so um, we have to regard ourselves as being as being what we truly are our, our actual identity in a state is in jesus christ dead to sin and alive in him and yet we struggle because we're in this in-between space where this where sin is very much knocking at our door i think the phrase soul to understand is the hardest one for mm-hmm. the position that we are it is because that is really in tension with parent tension. parent tension totally there's a freedom 
Where is that? Where is the, the phrase sold under? Verse 14. Yeah, the one I just read. Sold under sin. Yep. And I think, I think you're right. And I think that I sort of paused on that today and maybe even wrote on it. It might be here. But I, but I, I just think the unbalance. Like, yeah. You know, I, yeah. I'm there's a reason. There's a reason it's a debate. It's like. But that's a hard one, I think. How would you all explain that if indeed we're correct in saying this is the converted Paul writing about his own condition and those that are in Christ? What, how would you explain sold under sin? It's not our identity, but if it does apply to the Christian, how would it? He was formerly a slave to sin, maybe. And it says sold under sin, and that, that would imply slave to sin. Yes, and, that, and like you're saying, I mean, Chamberlain's comment would help there in that it was a condition that was completely pervasive and owned him and owned all of us before we came in Christ, but it continues to a degree. Doesn't, it no longer identifies us, and one day it will be totally done away with, but it continues to a degree into the life of the believer. And yet, what I think, I think that's good, and I think... Yeah, yeah go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Imperfect, but thinking again to the Israelites, and like the way that they were delivered out of Egypt, and yet they were immediate, almost you know, seemingly immediately pining for the flesh pots uh, <laughs> of Egypt. The leeks and, and, and the, the watermelons. And, the and, the yeah. and so, they, you know, their slave, their slavish nature and desires, like, didn't lead them, even though they were freed. Yeah, freed and still, saved still and loved. And, totally. In, in, some, in some respect. Yes. You definitely see pictures of that in the Old Testament. Um, plenty. Well, that's not a great analogy because that whole generation died. So It's true. Most of them. Right. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I think some of it could be. I'm. I don't know. There's a reason. This is a hard text. I don't have all the answers. But I think y'all are doing great, and I think that I'm enjoying. I'm enjoying working this out with y'all. But when he says I am of the flesh, obviously he's not just flesh, but he is talking about his old man there, right? I'm of the flesh. What's he describing when he says sold under sin? The flesh. The fleshly man. The fleshly man. The old Adam. The one born in Adam is completely sold under sin. But that's not all there is to the converted Paul, right? He goes on. So the next one is the inner being or the inner man, the inner human is the new man, born again through faith in Christ, united to him. And then thirdly, the law of my mind um, to which the flesh is opposed. And I think that's in verse 22. Yeah, my inner being. Um, my inner man. Sorry. No, that's sorry. Where, where does he say inner mind? I don't have the unfortunate. Oh, uh, in verse 23. In verse 23. Um, the law of my mind to which the flesh is opposed is God's law. The new birth changes my relationship to the law, like I was saying earlier, from one of enmity or hatred to friendship. Uh, Knox Chamberlain says this, only as a renewed being can I delight in God's law for the right reasons. Now, what's the, what's the consummate psalm that really showcases this relationship of the believer, of the child of God, the one who trusts in God and his promises to the law? 119. It's 176 verses, the longest chapter in the Bible, and it's just an exulting in God's word. And it's worship, it worships, it's worshiping the law, but really it's because it understands that the law is God's word, and God's word is God himself. It's his character, which is God himself. And so it's worshiping the beauty and the goodness of his word and of God himself. Um, it is the path of life. Put into right relationship with God through trust in Jesus Christ, his son, the law becomes something that we love. Because we no longer have to keep it. We're not obligated to keep it. It's been kept for us. And so we're put into a relationship, not of antipathy, but of, hey, we're his sons and daughters. We don't have to obey mom and dad. We trust them. They, we know they love us. We're their kids. 
We're, if I do anything wrong, I don't stop being their kid. Um, I want I want to obey them. When I don't, I'm I'm full of sorrow, and I and I wanna and I wanna say sorry, and I wanna restore that. I want that relationship to be restored. Um, but I can't lose my sonship, right? It's not what it's, that's not how it works because of Jesus. Um, the two cell, these two cells are are in us. I believe Paul's saying we're teasing this out not alternatively but simultaneously. In, in the new man, in the new woman. The self is thus deeply divided at war. This is just the way Paul describes the Christian elsewhere in, in some of his other, other letters. Um, now notice a few other things. The divided self of verse 25b, the divided self of verse 25b, where he says, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. The divided self of 25b does not precede but follows the joyful recognition of Christ's rescue, rescue in the first part of that verse, verse 25a, right? So, in other words, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then he goes on to say, I serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So there's that war, right? And he's already admitted, hey, God has rescued us in Christ. So Christ rescues me, so I war until my physical resurrection and completion. But what Christ has, be, what God has begun in Christ, He will complete. As Calvin writes elsewhere, in fact, on Zephaniah chapter three, uh, for His chief glory, I'm quoting Calvin: for His chief glory, God's chief glory is that vast and ineffable goodness. Ineffable meaning essentially indescribable. For His chief glory is that vast and ineffable goodness by which He has once embraced us, and which He will show us to the end. So how? Yep. So. You know, uh, when reads this, why would it be incorrect to, to take away from this that a Christian should lead an ascetic life and, you know, try to abstain from all fleshly things? And, and, you know, I think, too. I think, yes, it. to explain. What's, that's the question is what's fleshly, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, and I think that to say... It's explicit in the scriptures, right? In Hebrews, was it chapter 12 where it says, therefore, after, after that, that chapter of, of faith and those who are faithful and trusted in God, and then in chapter 12 it says, therefore, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, um, uh, cutting, cutting off the, the sin which so easily, doing away with that sin which so easily entangles us and running that race uh, as, as, as the witnesses are cheering us on. Um, absolutely. Anything that, anything that causes us to stumble, we got to cut off. But, but Sarks is not... The, it's not. It's not like the stuff. Fi- it's not physics. It's not no. like you know, physics is good. Like I shouldn't. Like, stuff is good. I shouldn't deny myself food. And That's drink right. That's right. In some effort to become more holy. That's right. Food and drink. There's a reason that yeah, like God made him. He pronounced him good. He became flesh. He took on flesh, and he didn't. You know, in taking on flesh, he was if if creation and if he made all things, which he did, and said they're good. That was a stamp of the goodness of things. But man, becoming human showed that actually stuff that was an even more affirmative stamp on the goodness of, of stuff. And so, yeah, the, the, the sarks, the flesh that Paul's talking about here, and this, the same word can be used in different ways throughout the scriptures is that which has been, been, um, corrupted, completely corrupted by sin. And that is, that is opposed to God. It's the old man. It's not, yeah, it's not stuff. So good, great, um, um, distinction. Um, Knox Chamberlain again, he says, it is not merely the struggle against sin, verse 25b, that accounts for the anguish, verse 24a. To have tasted the already of salvation 
creates a longing that is not fully satisfied until the not yet becomes already, right? Until we are glorified and see Christ face to face and can't sin anymore. Yeah, passe non peccare. Um, or non passe peccare, I should say. Assurance of eventual rescue prevents anguish from degenerating into despair. And the very division within the self shows that sin is being effectively resisted in anticipation of final victory. Um, okay, so I hope this doesn't stop recording here when I do this, but I wanted to share, I, I, until that very comment, I, I had forgotten something that I wrote down when I was working out today and want to share it right now. How does knowing that we have the imputed righteousness of Christ, something I sort of I touched on and underlined uh, at the beginning of our time, how does knowing that we have the imputed righteousness, remember that outside alien righteousness of Christ, that it's, been, it's applied to you fully, his full righteousness through faith, you receive it when you trust in him. How does, how does knowing that we have that help us in our fight against sin, help us in our sanctification journey? What do you think? This is a very, very practical question. How does knowing that we have the full imputed righteousness of Christ, his righteousness that's been pushed into our account, received through faith, how does that help us fight this fight? Fight the, the fight of faith to fight against sin, to refuse sin, when we sin, to run back to God and sorrow over our sins, to embrace the good, to fall, fix our eyes on Christ. I think it's... As opposed it, to just, I can live how I want to live, I yay! Think it's an antidote to, well... I mean, I'm maybe looking at a different angle, but like, I think you would not be able to, you would be stuck on verse 24 and not able to get to 25 because... Yeah, will I ever get there? Because Satan is, um, you know, the accuser of the brethren. You're so, you'll never, you keep sinning the same thing, you'll never do it. Right, and so it's almost like... like Just give up. It's like going into a battle... Um, against overwhelming odds, seeming overwhelming odds. But if you know that the battle is going to be won, yeah, I know the outcome. Then you are not going to turn tail and run. There's this hope. There's, There's this hope. hope that the end, the, the vision of the end, and that's my reality. Gets it helps me to actually, if I understand it rightly, helps me to fight stronger. That hope helps me to wield arms. Because we're a lot weaker. We're, we're, we're exponentially weaker than Satan. Totally. And we're no match. Against him, unless uh, unless we're in Christ, we're in Christ, closed in Christ, and we have that assurance that um, that that his his righteousness has been put to our account, right? And that no matter whether we stumble, even though we stumble, even though we do what we do not want, uh, in at times, that is not that's my that's not my identifier. That's yeah, that's not what identifies me. And so I'm, yeah, and my performance isn't what identifies me. My performance, is, my performance is not my true condition. My true condition is that I'm fully forgiven, I have the full righteousness of Christ, and I'm fully loved. And the right response to that isn't, hey, then I can live how I want to, right? That's what Paul talks about on Mass in, in Romans 6. The right response is to have that hope, uh, and therefore, on the flip side of having that hope, hey, this is what I, I, have, I have the full righteousness of Christ. That's what identifies me, not my performance. On the flip side of that is, I'm not, I, I will not despair. I think, I think the imputed righteousness of Christ keeps us from despairing in this fight against sin. 
because we know the outcome. We know, we know the outcome and we know our true identity. God sees us and he sees us clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and that helps us fight. What else? Any, yeah, I think that's dead on. And that's a personal, I think it's theologically true, but I think it's, it's helped me in some, dark, in some dark days and it helps me most days, to be honest with you. Anything else on that? And then I'll, I'll close this out with a few more comments, um, a few more bits of evidence and then we'll, we'll be done at nine sharp and open it up to any more questions. Okay. Um, on the other hand, I said I'd mentioned some of the other side. There's not nearly as much, not nearly. Don't worry, I'll finish in five. On the other hand, he seems not to have the power to do the good he wants, verses 15 through 20. I think 15, verses 15 through 20 almost convince me when I read them, oh man, I think this is the, the pre-converted Saul, Paul. In, in this... Is this the Christian experience, verses 15 through 20? Is this the, is this the, the Christian victory? Um, you know, sold under sin. I do the very thing I don't want to do. I don't do what I hate. I, I don't do what I want to do. I do what I don't want to do. Um, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. There's, there's, a lot, there's a lot there that makes you kind of tilt toward the other, contempt you to tilt toward the other direction. What else argues for this being pre-saved, this, this pre-saved Saul. Maybe verse 23, captive to the law of sin. And yet, it's a captivity to the, to the law of sin. Yes, we are captive to the law of sin, which is why it must daily and hourly be put to death. And it can be because it has been put to death once for all by Jesus. And we are united to him in that death by faith. So we must take up the shield of faith, Ephesians 6. We must live out in faith who we really are, as I've been saying throughout this, this, this lecture. We must walk out our true identity in Jesus. That's why we have to keep our eyes fixed on him and remind ourselves together and of, of that reality and of be in his word and be in prayer. This is the life of faith. It's not to walk by sight, by feelings, by circumstances, which is sight, by the world, by our sinful desires, the old man, the flesh. It's not, not to give in to the devil's allurements, right? Um, against position one, Chamblin writes, on the other hand, Chamblin writes, Knox Chamblin, there are indeed passages where Paul the Christian expresses anguish and shame over his attitude as a Pharisee. I think these last few points are really salient, so, ch- so stay with me and then we'll be done. There are indeed passages where Paul the Christian expresses anguish and shame over his attitude as a Pharisee, right? And in other, in other letters... He's, he, he laments the fact that he did what he did. He was killing Christians, putting them in prison, railing against God's people. But he does not portray a deeply troubled Pharisee, right? He, as a Christian, he laments the fact that he was a Pharisee, but he never indicates that when he was a Pharisee, he was troubled at all about his behavior. He was dead certain that he was doing the right thing, right? That's very not consonant with the Paul that we see here in Romans 7. Chamberlain continues along this line with a very helpful insight. Moreover, if our passage represented insight into Paul's struggle as a Pharisee, would he not more likely speak of doing good, but willing evil, rather than the reverse, right? Of doing good, but willing evil. And rather, he's wanting to do good. Um, he's wishing he could do good, but he's doing evil instead. So it's like the reverse of... Yeah, it was the hallmark of the Pharisees. Right? Why now? That was the hallmark of the Pharisees. Right, exactly. It's the man who picked up his, his mattress on Sunday. That's right. On the, on the Sabbath. Mm-hmm. They weren't conflicted like this Paul is. No. And Paul wasn't, doesn't give the impression at all that he was conflicted. And he gives a picture of himself as a Pharisee in Philippians 3, verses 3 through 6, and it's not this picture. 
Um, I think verse 20b helps answer this. Sin is doing, is doing this, my sinful, dead, fallen, Adamic self. Um, so sin is the one doing this, not my new self, not the real me, right? So my old man, it's no longer, it's no longer my identity. It's no longer the me that, that God looks at in Christ, but it's, it is, it needs to be put to death, even though it already has been put to death in Christ, right? Um, is that dual reality? Verses 7 through 13 are clearly a recollection of Paul's pre-Christian experience, is what Chamberlain says. They're dom- verses 7 through 13, when you look at, it gram- at the grammar, are, it's dominated by past tenses. In 14 through 24, however, accepting will deliver in verse 24, who, who will deliver me from this body of death, every other verb is present tense. So Paul seems to be shifting from who I was to who I am now, and I'm a man who struggles. But Christ has delivered us. And then he goes on in chapter 8 into some glorious... Chapter 8 may be the most beautiful chapter in the whole Bible. And then chapter 9 is one of the hardest. So, um, Verses 21 through 23 convince me in a certain direction. And that's the direction that you guys all voted in unanimously. Um, and so what Christian can honestly relate um, to verse 21? So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. It's a very realistic. Now, let me ask you this as we close. Um, why is it hopeful to the Christian if this is the saved, if this is the saved Paul speaking? Maybe we're all wrong. It's a debate for a reason, but I think we're right. Why is it helpful if this was the saved Paul writing this way? Why is that helpful to us in our Christian life? What hope does that give us? I mean, if Paul, the saved Paul, the, saved Paul. the greatest evangelist yeah. who ever lived, got stoned and they thought he was dead and he got up and he wasn't dead and he kept, went way, to the next city and kept preaching the gospel. in his maturity, <laughs> or as, as a you know, mature <laughs> believer, knew who he was in Christ, then when I feel this way, um, it's not all, it's not it's all not, over for it's me. It's not my problem. It's not something yeah, i Yeah, that's right. It's the, it's the, I'm hopeless and I'm not saved. It's the typical Christian condition. It shows that, yeah, you're right there along with Paul. What else? That's great. What else? Why is this, all, why is this hopeful? Why else to the Christian? I mean, I think that's right on. Anything else? It's like what Jordan's saying. It gives us permission to wrestle. It gives us permission to wrestle, to agonize. It's the opposite of like, hey, just don't do something. And if you do it, just hide it. It's like, dude, I, I know who I am in Christ. And yet I'm, and I have the freedom through this chapter because this is the real Christian struggle. And I'm putting this thing to death. And sometimes I'm successful and sometimes I'm not. But I'm not my performance. I am Christ's performance. In his payment for my sin and in his imputed righteousness. That's who I am. So I have freedom. I have space all of a sudden. I have a wide ground to stand on. The struggle. Against sin, because I know that we're going to win the victory. I know it's already been won. I know where the battle's heading. I know I'm on the right side. I know that I'm seated with Christ. I know that I'm united to him in his death and therefore in his resurrection. Remember the pulley. And I know that I'm deeply loved and he's brought me to himself and made me his own and actually made me part of his own body. And I'm vitally connected to him as my head. He will never sever his head from his body. He'd have to kill himself. He won't do it. He's God. He's already died once. And I'm, and I'm dead in him to sin. So it gives me hope. It allows me to agonize and struggle against sin, to feel wretched, 
And like sometimes that we might despair, I felt this way. But again, if we know who we are in Christ, and then we see Paul, Paul himself wrestling in this way, it can encourage us, man, I guess I'm not the only one. And I guess I'm not just a weird, crazy, defeated Christian person. Or maybe I'm not a Christian at all. The fact that you're struggling is a sign that you are a believer. I think this is evidence that you are a Christian, not that you're not. Um, I have here that to finish with this quote, but I'm not sure I will. I need, I want to, yeah, we're two minutes over. So let me, let me just look at it. Let me eyeball it real quick. I'm not going to. Um, anything as I close, before I close in prayer, anything else? I know this has been, this has been like eight. Look, we're going to get to, we're going to, in January, we're going to open up into eight and eight is incredible. This is a tough chapter. Well done. Well done making it through the semester. We'll get to eight in January and then we'll be, um, nine is intense and amazing. And then we'll go, Paul continues along in this incredible book. So well done you tough chapter. Um, anything else before I close this? Any comments, any questions? How does, you, you mentioned that whether you think that those last few verses of chapter 7 is about all pre-conversion or post-conversion shapes, how you read all of the rest of Paul's letters, how would you interpret Paul differently if you took one view versus the other? It's a good question. I was lifting that from um, uh, a commentator, um, that comment, and I never really thought about it that way before, but I do think there's truth to it. Um, your question is good. So he's talking about the sanctification, I mean, really where we are as Christians in our lives between first trusting in Christ and then glory, right? So really the Christian life. Um, and I think that, I know that the way that it would play out differently if you thought that, um, you know, I've already just kind of talked about the way that I think it would play out differently if, if you believe that this is the pre-Christian Paul. And that I don't think that it leaves you as much room to, to struggle against uh, sin. And I think that it, 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 would, it would not allow you to have as big of a category for sanctification in Paul's letters. Um, for that, that journey, Philippians 2, where he talks about working out of salvation with fear and trembling. And I press on in Philippians 3 to make my calling and election sure. Um, not that I have already, Philippians 3, not that I have already obtained it, but I'm, and he's so secure in who he is in Christ, and yet he's agonizing, he's struggling, he's wrestling, he's cutting off everything that's going to keep him from running the straight race. And so I think that, um, and then giving yourself all the grace of Christ, like receiving all that grace as you, not as license to sin, but to sorrow over sin, to, 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 to jump in the water as it were, and to swim to shore, and to, and to run to him, to run to the Savior who died for us, who's making his breakfast by the sea to be reconciled to him, to have that hard conversation and then to, to continue to walk and talk with him because he's the one who's got us. So I think that um, there are just a few passages there that I touched on, but that's a good question. Uh, what, what do you, do you have any, anyone else, any answers to that? That's why I asked you. I wasn't sure how it yeah. affects your interpretation. And maybe we can talk about that more. If you come to lunch tomorrow, it's a little more time to think about it. It's good. Anything else? Any other comments? Um, let me close this in prayer. Thank y'all.
Let me just read this short thing. To, it's a sort of an answer to, maybe, to Paul. To, uh, it, it moves us into, it readies us for Romans 8 next semester. And, it's, and it sort of touches on um, a bit of Andrew's good question. Um, even, persons, even for persons wed to Christ, the struggle to submit to the law of God's will rather than as sin's tool is by no means over. Okay? The voicing of the self's anguish and dividedness at the close of Romans 7 well prepares for Romans 8. Paul opens the new chapter, Romans 8, with the assurance that amid the ongoing struggle and despite the repeated failures, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who are justified by his blood, there it is, and upon whom God has bestowed the gifts of righteousness. Right. Lord, thank you so much for this crew. Thank you for this, for your word. It all matters so much. It's all so necessary for life and godliness. Thank you that you've given us the word made flesh who lived for us, who died for us, who rose for us, who reigns for us, who is with us now by his spirit and who is one day, it's the next big thing on the biblical timeline, who's going to come back for his own. Jesus, thank you that the hands that pull the levers of the cosmos uh, have holes in them, that you are with us in our deepest, darkest hours and struggles, and that Paul is so real about the agonizing struggle against sin, and yet we have the victory in you. Thank you that you we are united to you in your death to sin. The law no longer can make demands on us, but we're yours. We're yours, body and soul, forever. Pray that would set us free, and uh, set us free to, to run hard after you, and to love others, and uh, pray in Jesus' name. Amen.